You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we're thankful to be here. We ask that you would be with us as we study spiritual material. We ask that you would send your spirit to help things be clear and plain. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you all had a good night. You didn't get too wet on the way over here. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation 14 and verse 6. Where are we going? Revelation 14 and verse 6. Revelation 14 and verse 6. Hopefully you learned some things that you never heard about before, about the first angel's message. Revelation 14 and verse 6. And when you get there, say amen. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So what we see here in just a few short verses is a lot of information going on. We see there's three angels. There's the everlasting gospel. We see those who dwell upon the earth, fear God, giving him glory, hour of his judgment, worship him who made. Okay, so we saw yesterday that the everlasting gospel goes out to those who dwell upon the earth. What is the phrase those who dwell upon the earth all about? Who can say? It's always talking about the righteous, right? No, it's talking about the wicked, right? So the everlasting gospel of Jesus is preached, which leads to fear, respect, love towards God. Before they used to fear something or someone or some things else, but they've heard the everlasting gospel, and now they fear God instead of whatever it was they used to fear. And then fearing God leads to something called giving him glory. Fearing or reverencing God is the result of accepting the everlasting gospel. That's justification. You come to Jesus no matter what you have done. He takes all your sins away. That's called justification, which is the work of an instant. Okay, then that leads to giving God glory or keeping his law is the result of fearing God. That is a process which takes a, okay, the first is our title. The second is our fitness to heaven. All right, so the everlasting gospel has gone out. They begin to fear God because the Holy Spirit made connection between here and here, and now they begin a process where you need to be rewired. You need to learn how to talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, and think and do like Jesus. Because I don't know about you, Pastor Travis still needs a lot of work, right? And I'm thinking that you do too, And so that is why we're in this thing through the process of a lifetime called sanctification. Sanctification is simply God rewiring your mind to make you less like you and more like Jesus. And I'll tell you, I need a lot because one of my family members did an Ancestry.com and uh, they found out that on the Smith side, I have family on both sides of the river in the Hatfields and McCoys. Both sides. So don't mess with me, right? So 
The gospel's gone out. They begin to fear God. Fearing God leads to giving glory. That is the definition of the everlasting gospel. John describes what the everlasting gospel is. It's both loving God that leads to obedience, right? And so the everlasting gospel is loving God, and then that leads you to want to naturally obey his law. It is not one without the other. It is not all law and no love, or else you'd be a Pharisee. It is not all love and no law, or else you would be, well, I don't know what you'd be. I don't want to be negative up here, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm thinking. So, John is simply rewording an earlier statement that he made. If you Fear me, give me, you see it? If you love me, keep my commandments. Except in the first angel's message, he says, if you fear me, give me glory. He's rewarding John 14, 15 in just different language, okay? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you fear me, give me glory. And then he does it again in 1 John chapter 5, 2, and 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we fear God and give him glory. You see that? When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So in Revelation 14, 6 and 7, John is simply rewording what he has already stated and laid out. He just says it in a, in a, different, in a different way. Love leads to obedience. Okay, God is 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 in every step of our of our um, Christian experience. It's not that we become a Christian and then God then expects us to figure it out. The Spirit of the Lord is involved in every area of of our of our Christian experience. And I've even heard that some Seventh Day Adventists believe that during the time of trouble, the Holy Spirit's withdrawn from the earth, and you're on your own to just figure it out, to go through Jacob's time of trouble. Friend of mine, where was Jacob during Jacob's time of trouble? In the arms of the angel. Who was that angel? It was the angel of the Lord. Who was that? So if Jacob was in the arms of the angel during Jacob's time of trouble, then where are you going to be? Didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? That promise is going to be with you all throughout eternity, okay? So let's, let's be biblical, and let's study responsibly. Okay, I already said all that. Let's move on. Now, new, new stuff. And he said with a megaphone, with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment. So we understand the fear God and the giving him glory part pretty well. Now let's move forward to the judgment. The reason to fear God and give him glory is because there is a judgment that we are in at this very hour. The judgment has come and worship him who made. And which, which text is this repeating right here? Where is John quoting from? He's quoting the, the uh, LXX or the Septuagint version of, of the Sabbath commandment of Exodus 20 verse 11. But you'll notice that the sea and the springs of water is not, is the sea and the springs of water is not in the Sabbath commandment. He's, he's also pulling from uh, the, 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 the authors of the Genesis Bible commentary have noted that this portion right here, the sea and the springs of water, is taken from the flood where the fountains of the great deep broke up. Okay? So what John is saying, worship the one who gave you the Sabbath as the creator by keeping the seventh day Sabbath and the one who sent the flood. So this is a reference right here to the springs of water 
of, of the flood. So the text says that the reason for fearing God and giving him glory is because the hour of his judgment has come. Where is John quoting from here? What is the Old Testament background of the first angel's message? You'll find this very, very familiar. Get this in your head. Fear God, give him glory for the hour of his. He's quoting from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. All three angels' messages are statements from the Old Testament applied at end time, okay? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Sound familiar? Fear God and keep his what? Except in Revelation 14, John says, fear God and give him glory, which is the same thing. Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Where's the judgment part? Well, verse 14, for God will bring every work into what? Judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, why do you suppose John switches glory for commandments? Because they're the same thing, right? Now, so God's glory, his goodness, his name, his character, and his law are all the exact same thing. Some people say that the law of God's a burden, okay? I'd say the law of God is about as much of a burden as marriage is a burden. Life got great for me when I got married. Amen? Some people say, all oh, the law is too restrictive. Now, pretend you're on the coast of California or Oregon, and there's a guardrail there, and there's a big cliff that's protecting you from going off the side and dying and rolling 88 times down the, the side of the cliff and dying in a fiery car accident. That guardrail is just very restrictive, isn't it? It just cramps me. It just, it just makes me, you know, so that I can't experience my freedom. No, that is, that is not the way you look at a guardrail. The guardrail is there to keep you safe. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery. Where does it say, do not commit adultery? That would be the seventh commandment, right? Y'all heard the, 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 the Ten Commandments song? Number seven, life is heaven when you're true to your mate. No? You ever heard that song? Go to the ABC and buy the book. It's a great song. It's the way that I remember the Ten Commandments. I have to sing the song in my head to remember the, the, in like a nanosecond, I have to sing the song to remember which number each commandment is. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Hmm. It's kind of interesting that if I don't, if I, if I don't commit adultery but do commit murder, I become a transgressor of the law. It's kind of hard to be a transgressor of the, the law that's been done away with at the cross. Little arrow for you there. So, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of confinement, the law of prison, the law of bondage. Is that what the text says? No. A prophet under inspiration named James, who was the leader of the New Testament church, who was the very brother of Jesus, said that the law is a law of what? Liberty. Okay? So the commandments, the glory, and the law are all the same thing, and there's a strong biblical connection with the law and the judgment. So we fear God and give glory to him, and we keep his law because it is the standard of judgment. Now, why is there a judgment in the first place? So we see this phrase, the hour of his judgment has come. It can be read both ways. God's judgment that he is conducting 
or that God himself is being judged. Why would God need to be judged? Who would dare bring an accusation against God? Let's go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. And when you get there, say, make this rain stop. Romans chapter, unless we're talking about the latter rain. All right. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Are you there? If you're not there, say, have mercy. All right. Probation ended. Romans 3 verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. It sounds like God is being judged. Okay? Notice the scrutiny that's, that's happening here. Let's look up the statement that Paul is quoting. Go to uh, Psalms 51, 1 through 4. Psalms 51, 1 through 4. Psalms 51, 1 through 4. When you get there, say, I love haystacks. All right. Psalms 51, 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And that's a lot of loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. This is the psalm that he wrote in response to the murder of Uriah and the adultery with Bathsheba. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So it's read both ways. The judgment that you are conducting and the judgment that you are being judged by. Isn't there going to be a thousand year period where we get to do a work of judgment? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 says we are going to do? That you will be judging the angels, you will be judging the world, you'll be judging God's judgment to see whether what he did was fair or not and allowing this one to go to heaven and this one to be lost. That's, that's what we're talking about. Okay, now why is God being scrutinized? Go to Genesis 3 verse 1. Go to Genesis 3 and verse 1. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Genesis 3 verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1, should be pretty easy to find, first book of the Bible. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor touch it, lest you die. Now watch verse 4. Let the heresy begin. Then, well, from the devil, not from me. You understand. Then the, the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. 
Now, in Genesis, I think it's 2 verse 17, God said, when you eat from the tree, you will surely. Now, what has Satan through the snake just said? You will not surely die. What is it called when you say what someone says is untrue? So what has Satan just called God? A liar. That is why there's a judgment because the character of God is now being brought into scrutiny. Okay? And uh, I don't have time to go through the rest of the verse, but the concept of God's character being reviewed is right here, right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. All right, about this very point, Ellen White says, from the first, the great controversy had been upon what? So this whole thing is over what? The law of God. Satan had sought to prove that the law was unjust and that his law was faulty. That the good and that the good of the universe required it to be changed. In attacking the law, he aimed to overthrow, or he aimed to overthrow the authority of its author. This happens in Revelation 13, and you're going to see how in just a few minutes. In the controversy, it was to be shown whether the divine statutes were defective and subject to change or perfect and immutable. On the very next page, she says, if the law could be changed, I'm on the computer, you're on the screen, if the law could be changed, man might have been saved without the sacrifice of Christ. But the fact that it was necessary for Christ to give his life for the fallen race proves that the law of God will not release the sinner from its claims upon him. It is demonstrated that the wages of sin is death, and when Christ died, the destruction of Satan was made certain. But if the law, watch this, but if the law was abolished at the cross, as many claim, then the agony and death of God's dear son were endured only to give Satan just what he asked. Then the prince of evil triumphed. His charges against the divine government were sustained. The very fact that Christ bore the penalty of man's transgression is a mighty argument to all created intelligences that the law is what? Changeless, that God is righteous and merciful and self-denying. What is he? That's going to come into play tomorrow. And that the infinite justice and mercy unite in the administration of his government. So here's what happened. Jesus steps off the throne for 33 and a half years. Satan took from Adam what he wanted for a time, the throne. Okay, When Adam sinned, he transferred loyalty from God to the enemy. And now this world is, is Satan's. That's why Paul calls him the, the prince and power in the air. Jesus calls him the ruler of this age, etc., etc. By faith, Jesus promised in 3.15 of Genesis that he would take away this throne at one point in history when he would come and become a man from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel, but, this, but the Messiah from the seed of the woman, which represents a church, um, would crush the head of the serpent. That event was the cross, okay? That's the first gospel. Bible scholars call that the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. Now, why would God allow this? Because he allows human and angelic free will. 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Because when God gives free will, he does not take away your freedom when you choose to use your freedom for evil, and that is why planes fly into buildings and 3,000 people die. God cannot just give freedom and then take it away when you choose to use it for evil, or else God cannot be a God of love. Now, this isn't a, a seminar on theodicy, which is my favorite non-prophecy topic, but that's... That's a very good answer. It's a biblical answer for the reason for human suffering. And so God told Adam and Eve that when you eat from the tree, you will die. And the reason why they didn't die on the spot was because a sacrifice was found for them immediately or else they would have had sentence carried out right there in the Garden of Eden. Jesus took their place. Man has a second probation and now Jesus becomes the second Adam and now, when Jesus died, we all have Adam as Jesus, as Adam, the second Adam, as our new positional representative. You see, Adam was the positional representative. God was the creator of heaven and earth. Adam was supposed to be the, cre the procreator, right? So God gave procreation powers to Adam and Eve. God has creative power, and he gave that procreative power to Adam. Adam was supposed to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the animals of the land, and God ruled over heaven and everything else. So Adam was in his sphere what God was in his sphere, and when Adam sinned, he transferred his loyalty over to Satan, and now Jesus comes to seek and to save that which was lost. He comes to buy back, redeem, or ransom the inheritance that Adam gave to Satan. That's the, go that's the everlasting gospel. That's the good news, okay? So, William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. He had no idea how right he was. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9 says, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a what? Spectacle to the world, both angels and to men. That Greek word for spectacle is theatron. It means literally theater. So this world is the stage where the great controversy will be played out. It is the stage that the character and the justice and the love and mercy of God are all displayed for all of eternity. Let's go to the book of Daniel where this stage is played out very, very well. Okay, go to Daniel chapter 7. Let me see what time we have. We have 25 minutes. Okay. Daniel chapter 7 is set up, is set up in three sections. Three sections. How many sections? 1 through 12 is one section. 13 through 18 is another section. 19 through 28 is another section. I do one whole Bible study, one whole evangelistic meeting on this topic because our evangelists have preached the judgment as a standalone message in our evangelistic meetings. But the problem with that is that it is not a standalone topic. The judgment is not the way that God keeps people out of heaven if they sinned a couple times. The judgment was meant to be the way that God deals with the little horn, beast, or antichrist power. That's the first, that's the first um, uh, uh, operation of the judgment according to Daniel chapter 7. So they all have the exact same pattern. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, 
Little horn, judgment, second coming. Rock hits the image on the feet. Say it with me. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, little horn, judgment, second coming. Okay? That's the first. That's the first. I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but that's 7, 1 through 12. Daniel begins to be physically weak when he hears what's going to happen to his people. And then in the second scene, we, we go through the same pattern. pattern. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, little horn, judgment. And then instead of the kingdom being set up, God switches it to the kingdom is given to the saints. So he personalizes the kingdom being given to the saints to Daniel because Daniel begins to be physically ill. Okay, And then the third scene says the same thing. So when they ask, is the pre-advent judgment biblical? Well, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, little horn, judgment, second coming. Apparently it is. The sanctuary is the most number one attack doctrine among the non-Adventist world. I don't know if you knew that. It's not the Sabbath. It is the sanctuary. Okay? The sanctuary is the DNA, it is the root of what Seventh-day Adventism is. You must know Daniel 7, 8, and 9 very well. If you know Daniel 7, 8, and 9 very well, you will never leave the Seventh-day Adventist church. No one's going to gossip you out of the church. No one's going to beat you out of the church because we're not in the church just for people. We're in the church because the church is the body of Christ, and if I separate from the church, I'm separating from Christ. That's what the Bible says. So there is literally no biblical reason ever to leave the church. No matter what the pastor does, no matter what the elders do, no matter what the deacons do, there is no biblical reason to leave Christ. Because first, yes, the church is made up of people who are sinners, but the church is a hospital for sinners, right? So, but the reason why I can't be anything else other than a Seventh-day Adventist Christian it's because all I do is just read the Bible and I don't have to make up some gymnastical argument by there's some secret rapture and all this, right? I, we just read the scriptures and that's, and that's all there is. So each scene has a similar pattern. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, little horn, judgment, second coming, or the kingdom given to the saints. In verse 25, there is an attack on God's people and God's law. Let's read Daniel 7, verse 25. Are you there? And he shall speak pompous. Revelation 13 says blasphemous. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Who is that? Well, that would be Jesus. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. So the little horn attacks Jesus through the person of his people, right? And he shall intend to change times and law, probably talking about the Sabbath. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, time, and half of a time. That's the 1260 days, the 42 months, or three and a half years, or 1260 years. Okay, so this little horn power is attacking God's people and God on a horizontal level in chapter 7. Now, in chapter 8, we are going to see that the little horn uh, goes vertical. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, there is another vision that God has given to Daniel. He sees a vision of a ram with two horns. Then he sees a goat with one notable horn. We see in verses 20 and 21 that that is the kingdom of 
of Persia, and then Greece is the, is the ram with the one notable horn, and we don't guess because verses 20 and 21 just say that. Now, go to Daniel 8, verse 9. Daniel, I'm summarizing for sake of time because, like I said yesterday, I'm assuming that you guys have some education in Bible prophecy and we're moving past evangelistic meeting information, okay? Daniel 8 and verse 9, are you there? And out of one of them, them is the winds because that is, it, it corresponds to the winds, which is also feminine. Them is feminine and the winds is feminine. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great. So the ram was great. The, the, the goat was very great, but the little horn was exceedingly great. It grew toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. Now watch what happens in verse 10. There is a shift from pagan to papal. How do we know that? And when I say papal, you know what I mean, right? Pa pagan Rome is Rome led by the Caesars. Papal Rome is Rome led by the fathers or the, or the, the popes. Watch verse 10. And it grew down. What, what does it say? It grew up. Remember we said in chapter 8, the little horn was going to go vertical. And it grew up to the host of heaven. It cast down some of the host, some of the stars to the ground, and trampled them. He exalted himself. Verse 11 is the most important verse, I think, in chapter 8. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? That's Jesus. So this little horn power exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So let's compare Daniel 8, uh, 10, and 11 to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How are you fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? You who have weakened the nations, watch the northwards, watch the upwards. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Right? He's going up. Lucifer wanted to go up. And in Daniel 8, the little horn goes where? Up. Because we see that the power behind the little horn, according to Revelation 13, let's go as fast as you can. Revelation 13, verse 1. Revelation 13 and verse 1. The beast goes up in chapter 8 because in, Revel in uh, Isaiah 14, Lucifer wanted to go up. So the real power behind the little horn is none other than Lucifer. So the Antichrist beast or little horn power is Satan's last ditch effort to get worship and to make it look spiritual, make it look religious, but it's actually a false system of worship. Revelation 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast, and we know that a beast represents a kingdom according to Daniel 7, 23 and 24. The angel just says it. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and crowns. Uh, skip to verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Satan, the dragon, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And then in verse 4, they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the 
beast and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast who was able to make war with him and so this little horn power is mimicking Jesus notice what they said when they worshiped him they said who is like the beast in other words who can go out and fight receive a deadly wound deadly wound and resurrect we can't fight against this who is like this power we can't fight against this but notice exactly what they said can somebody tell me what Mikael means or Michael who is like God? They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? So who is like God? Michael means who is like God. That possibly was the name that the angels called Jesus before he became Jesus on earth. Who is like the beast? They, they, they're stealing the name of Michael, who is like God, because the beast power is mimicking Jesus, who is like God. You see it? Okay, so Satan sets up a twin of Jesus in Revelation 13 so that people worship him instead of actually worshiping Jesus. This is called blasphemy. Now, what is the Bible's definition for blasphemy? John 10, 33, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So I'm sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus said that he was God. And I'm fine with that because whatever Jesus says is true. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, For many good works have I shown you for my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself. So man claiming to be God is biblical what? Blasphemy. So someone is trying to take God's place that is called Blasphemy. How does Satan blaspheme God? We saw in Daniel and Revelation that Satan attacks God's law. Why? Because the one who makes the law is the supreme ultimate authority. Yes or no? Right? You get pulled over by a policeman, whose authority are you under? Theirs, right? So Satan tries to set up a new law in Revelation chapter 13. How is this? Watch this. You're there right in Revelation 13. Let's see, let's see if this is there. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. Revelation 13, verse 14. Um, verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell upon the earth by the signs which he was granted to do. No, that's not the right. Oh, verse four, no wonder. So they worshiped Satan, okay? Who's the only one that receives worship according to Revelation 4, verse 11? The one who created and that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who physically said, let there be light, let there be dog, let there be cat, okay? So if you need me to prove that to you uh, on, on another time, I'll be happy to show you like 20 verses to prove that. Okay, so here he tries to make himself receive worship and he makes himself God. Number two, do not make any graven images. Look at Revelation 13 verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Self-explanatory. Number three, do not take my name in vain. 13 and verse 6. Then he opened his mouth and when you claim to be God without having the, the prerogatives of God literally, that is taking his name in vain by committing blasphemy. Number four, what is the mark of the beast? Forced, legislated Sunday worship. Okay, that's a second spurious Sabbath. 
So he says, no, you, God has his day, but I have my day. You show up to church on this day. So the first four commandments is our duty to God. In this first four commandments, it's the duty to the beast. And then the last six is your duty to man, right? Here, Satan tells you how to relate to other people. 13 verse 18 says, how, fifth commandment, honor your father and her mother. Now watch this. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a M-A-N. What does that spell? So 666 is not the mark of the beast. 666 is how we identify the power who is at the beast's head, right? So what is the, uh, the traditional way we understand 666? Vicarious Philly Day. The numbers equal out to in Roman numerology, Vicarious Philly Day, which means, which equals out to 666. And that is the official Pope's title in Latin, right? So it is the number of a man. So honor your father. What is the, what is the word uh, Pope mean? Father. Honor your father. And in Revelation 17, we see a woman who is on a scarlet-covered beast. What is her name? Mystery Mother of Harlots. So honor your Pope and his church. You guys see that? All right. Number six. Don't, don't, number six. Don't get your kicks from killing one another. See? That's, that song is helpful. Okay, don't murder. Sixth commandment. Do we need to talk about this one? I mean, 50 to 100 million people is a lot of people, right? Number seven. Don't commit adultery. Um, the wine of the wrath of her fornication, right? Then don't steal. Well, what's happening in 13 verse 4? Satan is stealing the worship that should only belong to Jesus. Number nine, don't lie. Number nine, don't be the kind to go around telling lies. See? All right. Revelation 13 and verse 14. And he, what's that next word? There you go. He's installing his version of the Ten Commandments, totally removing God's power to make rules and laws to govern the universe. And so Satan is governing the universe the way that he wants to. This is the world that, that, that shows what it is like when Satan is in charge. You watch the news lately? Is it good? Did y'all enjoy 2020? That's what it's like when you have a world where Satan's in charge, right? All right, number 10, don't covet. 13 verse 4 covers that. He coveted the worship. I will be like the Most High, right? He coveted the worship that only belongs to Jesus. Through the little horn, Satan seeks to replace God's law with his own version through the beast power which establishes his authority. So now, how does Revelation 13 and 14 connect. You all know that the verses and the chapters were not written in the original language. Hebrew and Greek is just nothing but a big run-on sentence. The, the verses and the chapters were not added till much later in Christian history. So you wouldn't go. John would not stand up in his church in, in, of Ephesus and say, church, let's now turn to Revelation 14 verse 6 and read the first angel's message. It would just, he would read chapter, he would read the content of what would later become chapter 13 and then move right into the content of what would later become chapter 14. You understand what I'm saying? 
This does not happen in a vacuum. So what happens in chapter 13, the beast seeks out to completely replace God, set up his law of authority, and now it's God's turn to speak. He says, the world is following and worshiping the beast, but then he says, fear God and worship him who made. The, it, the beast tried to have creative power by breathing life into the image of the beast, creating, uh, mimicking God's creative power, but God says, no, 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 that's not creation. Um, someone told, someone told it a really corny joke um, one time, and, and they said that, that uh, God was creating the world and uh, Satan said, hey, I can do that too. And he says, okay, go ahead. And so Satan gets a pile of dirt and God says, hey, get your own. I told you it was corny, but you get the point, right? You'll never forget it because it was so dorky, right? So God has the power to create dirt, but Satan only has the power to make people be buried by dirt. Okay, so in the, the creation of the image of the beast, Satan is trying to mock the creative power of God. Does that make sense? All right. So now, going back to Daniel 8 in, con in connection with the judgment, because that's what we're, we're under, the section of the judgment under the first angel still. The little horn's vertical attack. Go back to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 12. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 12. Daniel 8 and verse 12, are you there? Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Okay, that word daily is tamid. It incorporates everything sanctuary, from the candlestick to the bread to the priest to the daily services where you take a lamb to the sanctuary, and it also includes the Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month, you know, only one time a year, they went into the most holy place. That word to me incorporates all things sanctuary, from the changing of the showbread to putting oil in the candles, and the priests um, uh, ministering on behalf of God. That is really how the, the little horn tries to establish his version of a priesthood and that's what friday is all about oh my goodness don't miss friday friday is is just awesome when we talk about the rise of of the bishops and how um the devil tried to replace the high priestly ministry of jesus with an earthly priesthood and that friends is how god replaces the daily okay so now you get to verse 13 and god lets you in for the purpose of narration to a conversation between two angels. Watch what happens. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one, or an angel, speaking to another holy one, another angel, and said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, how long will this little horn power be able to get away with all this stuff? How long will the little horn power be able to carry out his plan? Do you see that in the text? What's the answer? What's the, what's the 2,300 days, Seventh-day Adventists? What is, what is that all about? What is the cleansing of the sanctuary? 
Remember in Daniel chapter 7, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, what happens next? Judgment. Then what happens next? Second coming. See what happens? Sorry, bud. You were real close. You were right, though. You could have been righter, though. All right. So, and he says to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. What did the Jewish mind understand the cleansing of the sanctuary was? The Day of Atonement. Well, if there's a typical Day of Atonement, then there must be a anti-typical Day of Atonement. Typical is the symbol. Anti-typical is what the symbol pointed to. So there's the typical lamb. Anti-typical lamb is who? Jesus. So there is a typical Day of Atonement, which means that there would also be a anti-typical Day of Atonement, which began in what year? Come on, stand up and preach. 1844, right? There you go. So, who can tell me the first step in the 2300-day prophecy timeline? Let's do a little review. When I was at Mission College, Pastor Torres would always warm us up in choir. Anthony would come over and warm us up on the, on the piano, and she would go through the scales. 457 B.C. Dun, dun. 457 B.C. Dun, dun. 457 B.C. Okay, now, what's 457 B.C.? The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We move forward uh, 483 days or years into the future, and we arrive to what date? Until Messiah the Prince. That's Daniel 9.25. 27 A.D., when Jesus was... What's Messiah mean? What was he anointed with? Do you have a Bible verse? Acts 10, 37 and 38. Look it up. Write it down and check it. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus became the biblical Messiah at his baptism. Okay? And then you move forward um, and to the midst of a week, according to Daniel 9, 27, you arrive at 30. 1 A.D., when Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, in the midst of a week. And now, you move forward three and a half more years, and you come to 34 A.D., when what three things happen? Stoning of Stephen. Gospel went to the Gentiles, and Saul became Paul. Okay, those are the three things. So from Acts 8, all, Acts 7 was the stoning of Stephen. Acts 8, the gospel went to the Gentiles. And there was never, there was never another um, uh, opportunity for Jerusalem as a whole to repent after Acts chapter 8. It was just individuals. But now, when you take 2300 and you minus 490, what do you have left? 1810. So what was the last date on, on the 490-day uh, prophecy? So you just take 1810 and you add 34 and you get to... And you'd have to take 1,810 steps out into the field there where you park your cars, and you get to 1844 when the cleansing of the sanctuary began. Now, most uh, if I say, first thing, what is your first response? What happened in 1844? I'm so glad you guys said the great disappointment. Okay, now, what happened the very next day? Hiram Medicine and Ora Crozier was walking in that cornfield, and Crozier stopped and brother Edson where you at oh he's back there he's having some kind of a vision he sees Jesus moving from the holy to the most holy right that was the very next day God doesn't want his people to be a laughing stock he he filled the blank in 
when they were sincere, when they were, when they were trying to understand truth. The very next day on the 23rd, God gave that, that little vision to, to Hiram Edson, and it was like, oh, the earth wasn't the sanctuary to be cleansed with fire. It was the most holy place in heaven. That's what the 2300 days is really, all, is really all about. So he went back, and they told everybody, and they had a big Bible study, and the Lord filled in a giant blank there, and they understood that the earth wasn't the sanctuary to be cleansed with fire. The sanctuary to be cleansed was the one in heaven, that they were now living in the anti-typical day of atonement, that the hour of his judgment had finally come. And so... Here, comparing Daniel 8.12 to Daniel 7.21. Watch this. This same thing is, is being spoken. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, prevailing against them until, that's a big word, until what happens? A, the ancient of days came. Who's that? That's a biblical prophecy word for the name for the father. Until, so he was doing all of this. He was running his mouth, doing his thing, killing God's people, casting truth to the ground until the ancient of days came and a... So how important is the judgment to your salvation? The little horn condemns you to death through the person of all your brothers and sisters and the dark ages who are condemned to death and the people that they will kill during the mark of the beast until a... Judgment. So what happened shortly after the great disappointment? That little group of people kept studying, kept plugging away, kept praying for more truth, for more revealed light, and they turned into you. So what did God do in 1844? He not only, he not only went into the most holy place, he began a movement that would teach the three angels' messages. So when 1844 is thought about, it's your birthday. It's the beginnings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church established May 21st, 1863. Okay? So that's also what happened. And so how would the cleansing of the sanctuary unmask the little horn strategy? There would be a group of people who would be risen up to teach the truth about the judgment, that it's not God's way to keep people out of heaven. The purpose of the judgment from the context of Daniel 7 and 8 of what you have just seen is first to condemn who? Satan and the little horn. Yes or no? Okay. How many of you have heard Seventh-day Adventist preachers Oh, friend, how is it today with your soul? What if God today is going over your name in the books and the judgment above? And if you make a mistake today, oh, friend, how is it? Friends, I can show you several quotes where Ellen White says that the judgment of the living does not take place until the mark of the beast. The judgment starts with the dead and then at the close of the probation where God pours out the seven last plagues, people have made their last decision at some point during the Mark of the Beast crisis. That is when the judgment of the living takes place. I can supply you with four or five quotes from Ellen White. Very easy that, that says that. So here's the thing. The judgment is the best thing that we have because it says judgment was made how? In favor of the saints. It's literally judgment was made in favor of the holy ones. That's how it reads in the literal Hebrew. Judgment was made in favor of the holy ones. So was judgment bad news or good news? Okay? It depends who you are. 
If you're the little horn in Satan, is the judgment good news or bad news? It's bad news. But if you're a committed Christian, is the judgment good news? No, it's not good news. It's great news. Right? Because it's the way that God says, the little horn says, right? Accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And God says, yeah, they have done all this. Satan doesn't have to lie on you. He just has to tell the truth. Right? And then God says, yes, I know what they have done. But you see this? Repentance. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sins. The Lord rebuke you. That's what the judgment's all about, y'all. That's what it's all about. So in Daniel 7.22, the judgment was passed in favor of the saints. NASB, ESV, the judgment was given for the saints. NIV, judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. But in every version, notice the sequence. Judgment is always positive. It's not negative. So the judgment is what God sets up in order to give the saints the kingdom. In, in Revelation 15 and verse 4, we're going to go all the way up to the last five, five minutes here. I've got three slides left, and I'm going to take my five minutes. All right, go to Revelation 15 and verse 4. Revelation 15 and verse 4. Revelation 15, 4. Revelation 15, 4. Are you there? Revelation 15 and verse 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify? Here's a re repetition of the first angel's message. Who shall not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been... See, the seven last plagues is about to be poured out right here. Okay? Your judgments have been, been manifested. After these things, I looked, and behold, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came seven angels having seven last plagues. Okay? So here is the reality. There is a judgment. Then there is a second coming. After the seven last plagues, the very next thing that happened is the second coming. And here you see Revelation 15 pictures those who have victory over the beast and his image. And I saw something. And friends, listen, this is a very important righteousness by faith verse that no one ever talks about. This is very important. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. It kind of resembles the Red Sea. Okay, sea of glass mingled with fire. And those... And those who have the victory over the who? Because the beast had victory over so many people in the Middle Ages and through the mark of the beast. But now God gives his people victory, which is the same thing as in Daniel um, 7 saying, and the kingdom was given to the saints. Exact same phrase, in a different way, by a different prophet through the same spirit. Over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Notice why. They sing the song of Moses after the Red Sea deliverance when it didn't look like they were going to be delivered from Pharaoh. What did they sing? In chapter, I think it was Exodus 14 or 15, they sang the song of Moses. The song of Moses is sung again. 
by the people who it looks like there's no way that they're going to be delivered from the beast and his, and his mark, but God does deliver them. And there's, if you want to do a really interesting study for Revelation, study out all the Exodus illusions in the book of Revelation. There's a whole bunch of them. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are all my works. How are we righteous, friends? By faith. In who? In my works? No, your works. O Lord God Almighty. Just and true is the ways of the church. No, just and true is your ways, O King of Saints. Who shall not? It assumes that there are people who are not fearing God because they're still fearing the beast. Okay? Who shall not fear you and glorify or keep your commandments? The ones who keep the beast's commandments. That's the answer to that question. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. You all nations shall come and worship before you because all the nations followed the beast's. So now God is setting it right here in chapter 15 before he paddles the earth with the seven last plagues. See what's happening? For all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested. So just as God delivered the ancient Israelites from certain death from Pharaoh, God delivers his people from the beast. Notice that it is his works, not theirs. And also notice what they are doing. They are fearing God and glorifying his name. Then what comes next? The judgments are manifested. On who? On those who would not fear God and give him glory. God's judgments are poured out on those who reject the everlasting gospel, and they are all done by Jesus. We have no time left. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just heard a whole bunch of stuff from the Scriptures, and we understand that that's what it was going to be like because this is a seminar at camp meeting. Lord, help us to have the capacity to stretch our minds so that we can receive your word. And Lord, maybe there's someone here who needs to make a decision to recommit their life to you or to be baptized. I just invite with every eye closed and every head bowed that maybe someone here needs to make a decision to recommit their life. I would just invite you just to raise your hand that we would recommit to worshiping only God because maybe we've worshiped other things. Maybe we feared other things and we want to make a decision to fear God only now. I invite you just to raise your hand. And if you would like to be baptized and to start to work towards that process, I also invite you to raise your hand. Okay, very good. Father in heaven, you have heard the prayers, you have seen the commitments, and Lord, we thank you for your word because it is very exciting. Lord, we thank you for teaching us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.